Welcome to the Nurse Surgery Podcast. I'm Mike Wang, and I'm here with my co-host, Jake P. Colson. We are here to discuss all things neurosurgical. Hi, this is J.P. Colson, a resident in neurosurgery at Rush University. Please note that this is not a CME event, and the opinions and statements made in this podcast do not reflect those of any institution or professional organization. Now, let's get started. So today on the Neurosurgery Podcast, I'm joined by Jean-Pierre Mobasser. I've known Jean-Pierre because we're about the same vintage, and uh, he, like me, has a great passion for minimally invasive spine surgery. Now, unfortunately, again, uh, John Paul, our co-host, is busy working as an intern at Rush, so he's not with us today. But this is the second in a uh, series of three special recordings about financial planning, financial management for the neurosurgeon. And um, John Pierre, why don't you introduce yourself, introduce yourself to the audience here? Yeah, hi. Uh, I'm uh, Jean-Pierre Mobasser. I'm with Goodman Campbell Brain and Spine in Indianapolis. I've been in practice for now 15 years uh, in Indianapolis the whole time since training. Trained in Memphis at Sims Murphy Clinic uh, and have three kids now of uh, two in college and one in high school. So we're like parallel lives because I've got three yeah. kids right about the same age. Yeah. yeah, boy, boy, girl too, right? That's correct, boy, boy, girl. So, um, and you tell us a little bit about your family background. I don't want to get too personal, but you're not from a billionaire class family or anything no, like that, no. right? No, So I grew up in Atlanta. My parents actually, uh, both my parents uh, grew up in England and France, and we moved over to the states when I was two. Went to school in high school in Atlanta, and then went to college in Philadelphia, and then back to Augusta, Georgia, for medical school then Sims Murphy Clinic for uh, residency, and then been in Indianapolis ever since. Yeah, so you've been basically at the same job the whole time, right? Correct. Now, I'm rereading The Millionaire, Millionaire Next Door, and uh, have you ever read that book? No. It's a great book written by this guy named Dr. Stanley. He's like an economist. Uh-huh. And um, there's a whole chapter in this book. It's a bestseller about doctors and how doctors screwed up. Uh-huh. And yeah. how, uh, you know, and, and for, for the audience out there, please, if you get a chance to read it, it is a great and fun read. Uh, it's all about, uh, you know, how you build wealth in America. And the, the whole chapter about doctors really struck me because one of the things that comes up is like, don't, you know, don't get a divorce. Um, don't change jobs too much and all these things. So um, the three segments, as our listeners are finding out, one is for the young neurosurgeon finishing training. Uh, This is the second one for sort of, I hate to say middle age. You you and I are middle, mid-career. Mid-career is better. And uh, and the last one will be for people at the sort of end of their career. And so for the mid-career guy, um, I mean, we're kind of like at our economic zenith, right? Absolutely. So that's an interesting place because you kind of want it to go on forever. But what I would also say is what you do in that initial stage sets up everything else. Okay. So I think what you do when you first get out of training, your financial planning, what you buy housewise, what you start to put aside, what surgery center you join to develop ancillary revenue, all those things are critical to paying down debt and paying off your mortgage and positioning yourself so that when you're in our spot now – you're starting to make more and more money that's bankable or investable money. Now, that's a very good point. And, and let me just say this for the record, and I hate to have to say stuff like that, but we're not certified financial planners. We're not giving financial advice. We would never purport to. We're just having a conversation about how being a neurosurgeon is, is probably kind of a unique thing, right, yeah. in this arena. 
Uh, and the second thing is if I don't take any questions I ask you about being too personal because the point is not to expose whatever you're doing financially, but rather give general advice yeah. uh, in, in terms of this, this level of life. So, so let's talk about a couple different areas. Um, most neurosurgeons begin at least with student loans. Yes. What, what, how do you manage that? Like, should you have already gotten them all paid off? Or So I, I think a lot of this is personality dependent. Some people listen. I mean, some of us are conservative and some of us spend a lot of money and some of us don't. I am not a big spender. My wife is not a big spender. Oh, and that's if I important. could give anybody any advice in the world is have a spouse who doesn't like to spend money. You know, that's actually in the book, they talk, <laughs> right? It's like you, you can't have someone like just bleeding money while yeah. you're making money. That's right. That doesn't work. So we, and then my kids have learned by modeling, because I think kids do a lot of things from modeling their parents and they see two parents that work hard and don't spend a lot of money. So my two boys don't spend a lot of money. My daughter somehow missed all that. <laughs> well, daughters, yeah, they, they have different pressures, I think in general. Um, yeah. So, so you paid off your loans quickly. I well, assume. so I, I, first of all, I went to a medical school that was $6,000 a year. What? Yes, yeah, state school. And I will tell you, I think medical education is so similar that it's a little late now for this, but boy, a state education was, was very helpful in, in bills. 6000 a year. Yeah. Yeah. Wow. So also I had the benefit of parents who uh, wanted me to get out of training without debt. So my parents helped me basically pay off everything so that I didn't come out with debt. Okay, so let's say that uh, since this podcast is for the middle, you know, for the mid-career, I assume that um, there may be some listeners who are, you know, getting onto their 40s. I mean, I finished training when I was 33. And so that's only seven years away from, like, midlife. And so if you haven't paid off all your student loans now for the mid-career guy, what's your advice? Pay them off. Get rid of them, right? Get, yeah. Debt is a killer. I, I, again, we're not financial advisors, but really to start to see the money that you can put aside for your future, you have to get rid of your debt and all the interest you're paying on that debt. Yeah, because you can't discharge student loan debt. Or technically, it's very difficult, right? Yeah. yeah. How about the house thing? So like in Florida, you know, a lot of guys, I don't do this, but a lot of guys go bare without malpractice insurance. And the traditional teaching is put all your assets in your house or buy a six million dollar mansion and then uh, you know basically pay the mortgage on that what's what you're thinking about so that? so that's a i think that's specific to florida with your malpractice situation and your laws that protect your home the homestead laws yeah, yeah. so that's not that's a state-by-state state thing okay okay so in indiana we have very good malpractice reform so uh-huh. we have caps and limits on economic and non-economic damages um, we have review, medical review panels. So I actually practice without thinking about liability. Well, that's amazing. I yeah. want to move to Indiana now. Yeah, exactly. So, so for us, I have a very different perspective on that. So for me, in our state where I don't have to worry about those things, um, I try to put money aside that can be invested in a, a balanced portfolio between stocks, between bonds, between real estate. And then I also save a certain amount of money for sort of high-risk ventures. Oh, I see. Okay. So for, I, I remember reading Rich Dad, Poor Dad, right? Uh, Kayasuki, Rich Kayasuki. Anyways, a Hawaiian guy. And, and he always talks about, you know, there's assets and liabilities. And I never understood it until I read it. It's so, such a simple concept. I thought having like a Ferrari was an asset. <laughs> but, but now I know it's not. And a house even to some degree, it is an asset, but it's not really making you money, right? Yeah, I, I, I know I have a house in a very nice neighborhood and – 
I, with the amount of money I put into renovating it, I cannot get out the money out of it, what I put into it. I see. Okay. So for me, I'm better off having that money in investments and in real estate. Um, and then I think we as neurosurgeons are always exposed to technologies where we have an inside knowledge and inside track where not in a legal fashion, but in some way that we have some, uh, some inkling as to this investment opportunity. This is where I think doctors get into trouble. No, tell, tell, well, so tell us about that. But first, I want to ask you this question about uh, mortgage deductions. So another classic teaching is, okay, you're in mid-career. You've got this big house. And it's great because you can deduct the in- interest on the mortgage, right, Correct. against your federal taxes. Right. What, what is your opinion about that in general? So, again, this is a personal choice. I did that for 15 years. And I finally got to a point where I was getting my mortgage to a level where I could start dedicating money to, to pay it off. And I chose that I would rather not have a mortgage than have that deduction. And my accountant, basically, I talked to him about it and he said, yeah, he goes, there's, there's not a right answer to that. If you want to be able to deduct it financially, there's certain arguments that support that from a pure financial standpoint. But if you don't want to have a mortgage and you don't want to have any debt, there's also value to that. Yeah, it, I mean, it's a great deduction if you can use it. But on the other hand, you're only deducting taxes. You're not. Right. You're, you're still paying the interest, right? So you'll get, get a portion of it deducted. Right. Yeah. Yeah. Interesting. So tell, so tell us about these unique opportunities because people do come to us, whether they're, I mean, maybe because they think we have money or because they think we're smart or. Or because we're stupid. Or because we're stupid. Yeah. Right. Tell, like, what happens? Like, so, and, and that's been a trial and, and error process where people I know who have access to medically related startups or ventures will come to you and they're going to do it to all of us. And they'll ask you if you're interested. And the problem we have is we have no training for this. So you get a prospectus, you get some information, the idea sounds good, but you have no idea how to go about assessing this. Mm-hmm. Um, in Indiana, what we've done is a group of us, we've put together some venture groups that get together and discuss these opportunities together. And typically one of us will have a friend with some knowledge on a subject so they can help guide us through this. But at the end of the day, this has to be disposable income because when you do a high risk venture, it means you have to be prepared to lose that money. So you certainly don't want to put in more money than you're willing to risk losing. And uh, the, the, the sort of rule of thumb is that if you're looking at really high-risk ventures, maybe one out of 10 of these things actually hit. Mm, I see. So the group that you have, it's not all neurosurgeons, right? Correct. I mean, these are two other lawyers or businessmen or uh, there's, some, there's some orthopedic spine surgeons in the group as well. There's some neurosurgeons. And then I have some friends that are real estate who I use really as advisors, depending on if it's a real estate sort of play or whatever it may be. And you work together because of uh, of the knowledge base or because it's like you can get into bigger projects because you pull your money or both. both. Okay. Yeah. And it's fun too. Yeah. your friends and yeah. And, and once, you know, people, there are people out there who are trying to get your money. Now, some of them are honest and some of them are hoping it's going to work and some of them are dishonest. And a lot of us don't have the experience and we don't have the time to do the research to look into this. So if you don't have the experience and you don't have the friends to help you with it and you don't have the time to do the due diligence, then don't do it. Yeah, I remember there was a movie in the in the early '90s. I think it's called The Boiler Room, and uh, Vin Diesel. You remember that yeah, movie? Yeah, I do. Yeah, the investment banking. Yeah, the sharks, and yep. they called a doc. We got the doc on the phone, right? And then the doctors in the hallway of his clinic 
talking to this guy. He's getting harassed that by I his remember nurse, that, yeah. Right? And yeah. he's like, okay, yeah, yeah. Go whatever. ahead and do it. Go ahead and do it. It's like, we don't know anything about it. We have no time. Right. We don't, you know, often we don't have friends like you do that, that can help. So what if someone isn't so lucky as you? What if someone doesn't have like this circle of people that might, might be good at analyzing risk and benefit? So I, I think if, you're, if you don't have some way of analyzing it, then I would say to stay away. And I would say you're better off putting that money in some sort of investment mm-hmm. structure, right? We all have a structure to what we do, whether it's bonds, stocks, whether it's index funds, whether it's real estate. But I, that is going to be a safer long-term arrangement than a risky high-risk high venture that you don't have the knowledge to assess. Do you think that um, that we're bad at this because we weren't trained? I mean, we're all smart, right? Or do you think it's because we don't care enough? Or I mean, why do you think it is that doctors just have? I mean, there are obviously some very wealthy and powerful doctors who've invested well, but I mean, the, the reputation generally is that we're not good at that, right? We're not good at it. We're also, I think, doctors are trusting. Mm. And by nature, people that go into medicine have a trusting nature about them. And that can get taken advantage of. Right, because patients tell us something and we kind of just believe them implicitly, right? Correct. So then someone tells you this is a great idea and you don't necessarily challenge them on all those aspects. Right. And I've certainly made, I can tell you, plenty of decisions when a friend comes to me with an idea and says, hey, do you want to invest in this? And I look back and realize I threw $20,000 at that idea way too easily without Mm -hmm. any due diligence compared to what I do to figure out a complex patient's problem. Right, right. That's the irony, right? Yeah. Yeah, yeah. That, it's, it's so interesting how we intersect with the world. And, and I've known so many neurosurgeons who've lost a lot of money for that very reason, right? Yeah. And, and the other thing actually happens as well, which is I had a patient in clinic this week. And they come to you to ask you. It's like, hey, listen, I, I, there's this new medical thing and it's a small company and I'm thinking about getting into it. Do you want to look at it? And they're not even asking me for money. They're asking right. me for advice. Yeah, well, I would stay away from that. You don't do that? <laughs> you no. don't tell them anything? No. I, uh, I mean, again, I, I wouldn't tell even my friends what to do on something unless I really had a lot of time to research it, to get people to look at it for me with more expertise. Um, and even then I'd be uncomfortable telling somebody because there's – any of these things, there's a high risk of losing that money, and, yeah. and I wouldn't want to be responsible for somebody else doing that. So shifting gears a little bit, there's, you know, I train at USC, and, and um, Sims Murphy's guys, I mean, a, a lot of the folks in that practice are really good businessmen, right? Yeah, But USC, we were, I don't think they were good businessmen, or they certainly didn't claim to be. And we always talked about all these interesting things like, um, you know, the top three killers of neurosurgeons. And, and we always said it was like, okay, it was, it was uh, divorce, malpractice, and boredom, right? And to me, the, the mid-career guy is most susceptible to all three. Divorce, yep. Yep. boredom, and malpractice, you know, for, for obvious reasons, right? For all yep. three, right? Yep. Um, you hear about guys who are chronically unhappy with their situation and yep. – Nobody's totally happy. I mean, I, in Indiana, you guys have gone through a lot lately, right? Yeah. Everybody knows about that. Yeah. Uh, not you. I mean, just for our, our listeners, the situation between the university and, and Goodman Campbell, right? That was... Yeah, we had... So Indiana University made the decision that they wanted to employ their neurosurgeons and our group wanted to remain private. So there was a very large tug of war that occurred over the course of a year. And you'd always gotten along with them, right? 
Well, the, the physicians, past. absolutely. The, the, we're talking about the administration right. who's making this decision. So, you know, in that setting, I imagine a lot of your partners or friends uh, are like, I'm out of here. This is BS. I'm, you know, because there's, there's change, right? And so people change jobs. Like you're always hearing about people saying, okay, I'm, I'm just going to move. I, I don't like this, right? I mean, you probably There were a already. couple who moved over this. Most people sort of either stayed with Goodman Campbell or stayed at the university. Again, it's down a different rabbit hole, but when a person's a organization that accounts for 35% of your business says that we're not going to use you anymore, obviously some people aren't going to yeah. be able to sustain themselves in that organization. Yeah, so I've seen a lot of guys that they're mid-career, and because they're at the zenith of their power and influence and health maybe even, they're still pretty healthy and skill, they're very marketable. And so then they want to quickly move, and they're in high demand, being courted by everybody. I'm sure you're getting courted all the time. Every city, you know, like people want to hire you, right? So, um, no, by the way, that doesn't no, happen. that doesn't happen. No, that they just happens be. to you. No, but that they should <laughs> be. They just you don't you they don't they don't get to meet you because you're a much better businessman than I am and a much better leader of a group too. So I'm very bad at both. But um, for those guys who are out there, is that yeah, you know, I'm I'm not entirely happy with my situation, and, and of course, every situation is different, right? It is, but I think what you're getting at is what I see is that it's hard to look outwardly to find happiness. Mm -hmm. I believe that happiness comes internally. You have to be happy with yourself. You have to be happy with the choices you've made in life. You have to be happy with your family. I mean, the, yeah. the, the phrase happy, happy uh, wife, happy life, is there's, there's a reason for that phrase. And so I think those internal decisions that make you make good decisions and make you happy are critical because if you're not happy internally, then you go searching externally for happiness. Yeah. And that's a bad road. I mean, we're like the season of malcontent. I think they did all the studies recently showing that people are happier as they get older, right? When you get to your 50s, you get a little more settled down or something, right? right? You yeah. stop searching as much. You learn to be content with what you have, and you learn that the grass is not always greener on the other side. So that's the other side. I think a lot of people feel like, okay, this may be my last chance to move before I get a little bit off my edge. Uh, or edge of my game, and so it might be a good time. So I'm I'm torn myself about. It. I'm like I'm in a very comfortable place. I love my partners in Miami, but something in me tells me, well, if I'm going to make a big difference somewhere else, I better do it soon, right? Yeah. But the financial impact is huge. Funny, but there's more than financial impact. If your wife and your kids, you got three kids, they're mm -hmm. in high school. If they're if they're happy where they are, and you're going to uproot them to a different place for what? For ten percent more, for fifteen yeah. percent more. I mean, I I, I think you when you weigh the scale of decisions that you're going to uproot a family where they are happy and have their friends and their whole group. Remember, you're at work all the time. Yeah. If if your wife is not at work all the time, or your spouse, you know, whichever it is, and your kids are happy in their school life. I feel like the the person who's the neurosurgeon is the person who shouldn't choose where they go. Ah, that well, that's I've never heard that perspective. I mean, you're right. They spend more time at home. We're yeah. at work. Yeah, yeah. And a hospital is a hospital, generally speaking. Right. right. Yeah. yeah. The, the operating room is not going to be a whole lot different somewhere else. Well, I wish I was as smart as you because I basically I'm, a, I'm an idiot. I just put my money in government bonds and, you know, it's so stupid and like, I, you know, because I'm, I'm so risk averse in general. Not, not, I just, you know, I, I, I'm not smart enough to analyze that stuff. Well, first of all, I'm not either. So I have people that do that for me. So I think one of the things is finding people that you trust who do a good job and if investment advisors. Originally, we use my, I used my pay, parents' investment advisor when I first started out to start things. And That's good. Then we moved over to somebody who I knew socially in Indianapolis who seemed like a very good person and an honest person. And we've been really happy with that change. 
and I've set my kids' accounts up. They're 529s. My parents have left some money to my kids, so they have a little nest egg to get started mm -hmm. with in life. So I'm, again, my parents put me off on the right foot in life, and I want to do the same for my children. That's great, and, and I, I, my hat's off to you. I, I try to do the same. I read in, in this book again, and I, the rereading of The Millionaire Next Door, it's, um, they have this formula. And I love this formula because everybody's got a different formula for retirement savings. And what, what he says is you should take your annual income today. So that's pretty high for us, right? And you multiply it by your age okay. and divide it by 10. So everybody's probably under calculators right now. Doing math right <laughs> They're now. doing the math right now. And that's the bare minimum. And it's a higher mark than most retirement calculators online will give you. Mm -hmm. um, I, I think it's interesting. I mean, we're talking about Social Security is going to be insolvent in uh, this decade, I think. Right? So I can tell you what I did this past week. I met with my financial advisor, with my wife, and I said, okay, here's where our accounts are today. Here's the money that I believe I can put aside each year, assuming they're not major changes to what occurs over the next 10 years. This is just money that I can put into my investment accounts. I said what age do I have to be to retire so that I have X amount of dollars a year to live off of through, through perpetuity? And they've done some analysis and they've run some numbers for me so that I have an idea of mm -hmm. where I am and what I have to do. Do you have like a goal to retire earlier or do you just enjoy your job it's, so much? it's not that I have a goal to retire earlier. My goal is to have the ability uh. to retire earlier in case I become unhappy with my career unhappy with medicine, there's some health issue that occurs. Yeah. So, or Elizabeth can, Warren gets elected. Elizabeth Warren <laughs> right? I'll elected. say it, I'll yeah. say it. Or so I can just do what I do for the love of it and not have to worry about the finances at that point. So just, just for the listeners out there, if you are American, I know we have a lot of international listeners, uh, Elizabeth Warren released her healthcare proposal on November 1st. And, and if you haven't read it yet, you need to read it because uh, if you think you're related to our field or any field of medicine, it's gonna have a big impact. I don't think she's going to get elected, but certainly the conversation is changing. So my hat's off to you again that you're even thinking about this concept that you may uh, – I don't want to say forced to be retired. You, you may have to retrench a little bit, right? Yeah. yeah. Do, you, um, do you subscribe to the concept that we should have disability insurance? Yes. Yeah. Because yeah. we're so – yeah, I mean, high we, earning, right? Yeah, I mean, I mean, boy, do you want to go back at, at 50 and relearn a different career? Yeah. I mean, again, if we have to, we have to. But I like I, I again, like you, I have some conservative ways and I want to be able to provide for my wife and my family. And if something happens to me that doesn't allow me to do my job, I still want to have some sort of sort of income, even if I find a new way to be active and, and engaged. That's great. That's great. Well, I'm, I'm so enamored with what you've been doing in general that I uh, am looking forward to having you back. And we had talked about doing a podcast about uh, ambulatory, ambulatory surgery centers and hospital ownership and stuff like that. So that's our next frontier right now. We are looking, our group is looking at building and owning hospitals. I saw, uh, who was it? Um, Sasso. Yes. Is he part of your group? He is not part of our group, but we are both uh, in a group that is invested in a private physician spine hospital in Indianapolis. Okay. We are definitely going to have you back to talk about that because there's so many dimensions of that, whether it's how Medicare is steering cases to outpatient, the overall economic environment, um, how you do it, 
that's a very complex arena that I know nothing about. Yeah, and it's really interesting. And I can tell you, once you own part of a hospital and you start to see how you can run it and how it can be successful with a much tighter margin than existing, more complex hospitals are, it's fascinating. Wow, that's great. Well, thanks for coming on. Looking forward to having you back.